Open up your Bibles, beloved, to Isaiah chapter 45, and we're going to finish up Isaiah 45 tonight. And um, I want to kind of just remind you of what has come so far. So God has been describing, or Isaiah, well, God through Isaiah has been describing his choice of Cyrus to be the one who delivers uh, the nation that is in exile, right? They're in exile because of their sin. Um, they're in exile because of their rebellion against God. They're suffering um, judgment and they're suffering punishment. And they're su- suffering discipline. And um, God determines to save them by the, the work and the conquering hand of a, a pagan king, Cyrus, which to them, you know, at first blush is kind of beneath them, right? Like they are the people of God. And so therefore they ought to be delivered in a different sort of way. Um, they think that, you know, they deserve a second exodus, perhaps, you know, like I was saying, replete with the miracles and the manna and another Moses and all that stuff. And they're not getting that. They're getting Cyrus. Um, not that they deserved anything because God delivering them is, is entirely of his grace. But again, it's necessary that God delivers them and that he reestablishes the nation of, of, of Israel and that he reestablishes Jerusalem because through the remnant, the true Israel that is within physical Israel is going to come the, the Messiah, right? The true Messiah who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ is not just going to come out of nowhere. He's going to come out of, you know, the nation, the remnant of God's people as has been promised all along. And so he's describing, you know, just how he's going to do that. And then, you know, last week we saw how he dealt with sort of a disputation, the argument of the people like, you know, we'd like you maybe to do this another way, Lord. And God makes it very clear, like, who are you to even argue with me you know you are frail creatures of dust beyond that you're sinners you're covenant breakers you're lawbreakers. like who are you to argue with me in the way that i provide your deliverance right and it's the same message that god gives to us with regards to our salvation in the lord jesus christ right we talked about how you know our world wants to be saved in some grandiose way they want some great grandiose means of being saved and one that preferably gives them some glory in it all right and God's way of salvation is through the humbling and the humiliation of the Son of God and His, his crucifixion, his, his death bearing our sin, and His resurrection from the dead. And the glory of Christ will be seen soon. Don't worry about that. Christ's glory will be clearly revealed when He returns in all of His majesty to you know, bring our salvation you know, to its fullest completion and also to judge those who remain in rebellion against Him, right? But God has His way of doing things. And we have no business questioning Him, right? That's just foolishness. It's like the potter, or it's like the clay questioning the potter. Like, why have you made me like this? You know, where are the handles? What's the purpose here? Right? Like, that's, like we said, this isn't, you know, what's that movie again? Beauty and the Beast, where, you know, the pots talk. Like, this is reality. You just be quiet kind of thing, Right? And so now what we've got here is sort of the close to Isaiah 45. And I want us to look at it starting in verse 14. We'll read it all the way through to verse 25, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Then he says, Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame. 
and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me... Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this text tonight, we are always, as we are at every time, in need of you illuminating your truth to us from your holy word. We need you, Spirit of God, to come and to be our teacher. We need you to unfold to us that which we need to understand, that which we need to comprehend, that which we need to know, Lord, in order to know you, to know your truth, and to know your eternal providence and plan. And so I pray that you will draw near to us with the intent of teaching us. Father, I pray that our hearts would be open to you, open to receive your word with gladness and with joy. I pray, Father, that you would grant me the unction of your Holy Spirit so that I might teach these words, Father, faithfully and apply them accurately and and with good effect um, to the hearts of everybody that is here. I pray, Father, that we would um, behold your word tonight. Father, and those of us that are in Christ, Father, we would be encouraged, we would be strengthened, um, our faith would be deepened. And Father, for those who are not in Christ, Lord, we would be confronted with the reality of who you are and of the necessity that we have for a Savior for our many transgressions against you. So Lord, I pray that you'll come and that you'll do your work in our midst, that you will act um, in a gracious manner for the good of all the souls that are in this room. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, beloved, this text that we're looking at tonight has given commentators fits. All right. It's, it, it really has, right? Maybe as I was reading it, you were sitting there going, where is this all going? Like, it's kind of hard. It feels a little disjointed somewhat, right? And so, as a result, there's been a great deal of diversity of opinion regarding how these verses are to be understood. Guys have all kinds of different interpretations about this. And they've got a, a variety of different perspectives, I think, for a variety of different reasons. Number one is, they ask, you know, how do we understand these verses Why are they here in Isaiah 45 and how did they advance this narrative, especially since we've already seen a lot of this material 
already presented to us, right? I mean, we have, right? We've considered already in Isaiah the uniqueness of the Lord. We've considered already his superiority to the idols of the nations. We've considered already his love and his determined care for his chosen people, for the remnant within the nation of Israel that truly believes in the Lord and in his word. We have seen God's power over history. We have seen his ability to predict the future because he's predestined it all. In fact, if we're honest, there's very little new in that sense in these verses. Very little new that we haven't already seen in Isaiah. And so some commentators go far as to, go so far as to say, you know what this really is? This is kind of a collection of inspired statements from Isaiah that don't really have a central theme. They're just kind of deposited here. You know, maybe some editors or whatever got together some fragments of Isaiah's sermons and they didn't know what to do with it. So they just stuck it here at the end of Isaiah 45. I would say to that that that's lazy theologianism. Right. That's just that's not a word theologianism, but it is now. Right. I think that's lazy. Right. I, I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, here's what I think. I think that. No, I don't think it. I believe that the theme of these verses is really evident. And it's made evident in, in six repetitious statements in one form or another in this text that we just looked at. That basically, the heart of it is this. The Lord, the God who has revealed himself to Israel, the one who is Savior, he is God and there is no other. And so I believe that what God is doing here is he's summarizing everything that we have been looking at in the last few chapters of Isaiah. He is summarizing everything that he said into five core thoughts, okay? He's summarizing everything that he has said and, 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 and giving to us the implications, not only for the Jewish exiles, right, to whom you know Isaiah was first writing, and in particular, like I said earlier, spiritual Israel, those in Israel who are truly saved by grace through faith in the Lord and in His promised Messiah, but also the implications for us, for God's remnant, right? For the true church in this age, right? So when you approach the text in that way, it makes perfect sense. The God of Israel, the God of the Scriptures, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah who, you know, who is promised in the book of Isaiah is the one true God, and every living being will honor Him as God. One day, everybody's going to acknowledge it, right? Whether gladly as one who believes and has been saved from the wrath to come upon sinful humanity and who bows before Him in humble worship and in, you know, joyful gratitude, or as one who is vanquished and conquered in their own rebellion and who bows before Him in humiliating defeat. It's one or the other. Okay, and so from each of these paragraphs, I think what we see here, and I believe what we see here are we can make five authoritative and declarative statements about God and his redemptive plan. Five overarching truths from each one of these paragraphs, okay, that lead in a sequential order. It's really sort of a presentation of the gospel, is what we see here, right? So let me show you what I mean. Here's the first statement. Here's the first statement. That all nations will recognize Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the one true God, right? And that comes from verse 14. That there's coming a day when everybody will recognize the God of Israel, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, as the one true God. Okay? So look at it again. Remember, in verse 14, he is speaking first to the Jews that God would rescue out of Babylonian captivity, right? And he says this. Thus says the Lord, 
the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides Him. So what's being said here? Here's what's being said. In the near term, okay, the Lord is saying this. When He delivers the Jews out of the hands of the Babylonians, and He sends them back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple, okay, and they, and they rebuild the city, there are going to be people from throughout all of the nations that will recognize the Lord's power and His glory in all of this. That He's the only one that could orchestrate this. Okay? And they will come and confess that He really is the one and only God. Now I want you to see, commentators are actually united on this aspect, that they see that these nations, Egypt and Cush and Seba, they're used here as representatives of all the nations from the ends of the earth, okay? And what's being said here is this, is that no matter how wealthy, okay, no matter how powerful, okay, no matter how regal in stature, the Sabaeans were men of stature, they were large, right? No matter how glorious in their own eyes, there's going to come a day when all nations are going to humbly confess and acknowledge that our God is the true God, Right? And the, the reference here to chains is, is, a, is a figurative one. It's that the idea is not that they're going to be enslaved, okay? Because we know from the, nation, from the history of, of Israel from this point on, they didn't enslave any nations. That's not the point. It's figurative. It conveys the idea of submission, that they're going to confess that God dwells with His people. And indeed, you know, historians talk about the numbers of proselytes that increased over time, Right? after the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But in the long term, right, as it regards us, as it regards the people of God in this age, again, these words are, are pointing to the fact that there's coming a day when all the nations of the earth must confess that God is Lord, right? Why? Because there's going to be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that are part of the church of God. Isn't that true? Yes. That's a fact. There are people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And we see that beginning in the book of Acts, right? As the gospel of Jesus Christ is taken into all the world. And we see, you know, people from every nation being grafted into spiritual Israel, right? The true people of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also see what? Opposition to the gospel message, don't we? We see rejection of the gospel message. We see those who hear the truth and, 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 and reject it, right? And so what's going on is, is there's, this, there's this promise to us that one day is coming when everybody will confess that God really is God, right? They really will. And the proof of that is that Christ is redeeming people right now. Think about it in Revelation 5 when the elders are singing their great song of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ and they, they, you know, they proclaim how the unfolding and the consummation of the redemptive plan of God, including His final judgment, is in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what they say? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a king and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. You are, you are able to unfold history, Lord Jesus, because you have redeemed men from every tribe, nation, and tongue. You have redeemed people and you will be their judge. As to whether, you know, these people coming 
As to whether their acknowledgement will result in salvation is more explicitly answered as we progress through the rest of this text. But the first statement stands, and the first statement to be drawn uh, from, from everything that God has been saying through Isaiah is this. There's coming a day when all the nations will recognize Yahweh as the one true God, no matter who they are. And then second, statement number two. The true God is not to be found in any other religions. And may I add, no matter how hard you try. Right? The Lord and who He is. The truth about Him. It's not to be found in any other religions, which are all idolatry. Okay? Some people bristle up when I say that. Like, every other religion is idolatry. Well, what else do you call it? It's either gross idolatry of graven images and all that other stuff, or it is the idolatry of a God of your own making a Jesus of your own construction, a salvation of your own imagination. That's nothing less than full-blown idolatry, right? That's what that is. In fact, look at verses 15 through 17 again. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Now what's being said here? Well, the first thing is this. It's a true statement. God hides himself from idolaters, right? God doesn't reveal himself in man's religions, right? As, but as Romans 1 and Psalm 19 make clear, there's enough revelation in nature that everyone who does not seek God on God's own terms, right? Or without excuse. But it's also evident, is it not, that nature alone is never enough to fully and truly understand God. But that's not God's fault. It's ours. It's not a deficiency in God and in His revelation in all of His creation. The deficiency is in us. Because we are by nature fallen and sinful, because we're sinners, you know, and and darkened in our understanding and we're alienated from God, by our rebellion and sin, we cannot come to any right understanding of God apart from His special revelation, right? None of us naturally knows God. I'm going to say that again. None of us naturally knows God. I say that because I run into people, and so do you sometimes, who will say, well, I've always known God. No, you haven't. You may have known a God of your imagination. You may have, known, may have known, always known a God that you made up, but you have not always known the God of Scripture. You haven't. Because the God of Scripture supernaturally reveals Himself through His special revelation, His Word to His prophets, and His Word to His apostles, and His Holy Word that is written to us, right? In fact, Romans 1 speaks very plainly to this. You know these words, because I preached through them like two years ago. Something like that, I don't know. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. 
Here's why. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for idols, right? Resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Man, creeping things. Here's the point. Whatever self-religion it may be, self-created religion it may be, whether it's gross idolatry, right, like I was saying, or in the worship of graven images, or the worship of creation, or the worship of ourselves and our baser instincts, or if it's some high-minded intellectual philosophy, right, it all lacks a real understanding, a true understanding of God because it's based in our own wisdom and in our own desires, which are corrupt. Fallen man, left to himself, will always create a carnival caricature of the true God. Because as Paul said to the Corinthians, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, through human wisdom. It pleased God, therefore, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God will not allow himself to be known through idolatry or false religion. That modern secular notion that there's a little bit of truth in every religion is a whole lot of a lie. That's just not true. All attempts to know God through, you know, in accor- through and according to human wisdom is futility. And all false religions are really idolatry because they create an imaginary character of God according to human desire. And that's why, as we read here, All idolaters are put to shame and they're confounded and they go in confusion together. They just keep, you know, taking blind stabs in the dark at who God is and they never actually find Him. But by contrast, look at what he says. Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity, right? Who's the Israel that's in view here? Is it all of physical Israel? No, it's spiritual Israel again, right? In the Old Testament, it's the remnant in, in Babylon. In the New Testament, it's the, it's the true church, the remnant in modern-day Babylon. The true people of God will not be put to shame. Why? Because we know God in truth. That's why Paul would say these things, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In Romans chapter 10, and starting in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how in the world is that? How is that so? How is it that spiritual Israel, the Old and the New Testament, and today, how is it that spiritual Israel is saved? Well, that leads to the third statement. God's not found in human religions, and He's not found in human speculation. He's found through His word of truth, which He alone has spoken, right? Look, the people of God don't know God. We don't know God because we've got a greater wisdom than anybody else. Okay? It's not because we're smarter than everybody else. It's not because somehow we are much more erudite and scholarly and, you know, than everybody else. That everybody else outside of the body of Christ is stupid and we're smart. Right? That's not it. 
It's not because we've searched him out and found him by human effort. Like we really made an effort to find God. And what do you know? We found him. No. God's people know him because he has spoken. He has spoken. And he's given us ears to hear. Look at verses. Look starting in verse 18. He says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Now look what he does here. And the Lord does this repeatedly in this book. I mentioned it last week. He identifies himself yet again as the creator and the ruler of everything, right? But here he says a couple of things. That he created the heavens and the earth, and, and because of that, the implication is what? He's got the right to rule it according to his own will and his own purpose. And he does have a purpose. That's the idea here. When he says he didn't create the, the earth empty, that is, he did not create the earth as a chaos. That's what that means. Where anything goes. No, he created it in accordance with his sovereign will. And he created it to be inhabited by man. The sense of what God's saying here is that, look, the creation wasn't haphazard. It wasn't purposeless. It was completely purposeful. It is purposeful. He created it and he rules over it by the word of his power, according, I mean, including the nations of men. He emphasizes yet again, he alone is God and there's no other. There's no ruler, no other God, no other power, no other overarching reality but him alone. And he is a God who is not silent. God doesn't remain silent. You know, I've heard people say, well, if God would just speak to me, I'd believe. He has. He has already spoken. You know, he speaks through Creation, yes, but he also speaks through his divine revelation to his people in spoken and in written word. I want you to think about the wonder of that for a moment. That the God of the universe, who is beyond our understanding, would condescend to speak to us in a way that we could truly know him and understand him. That's remarkable. Right? I don't think we're as amazed by that as we ought to be. I think we sometimes just take that for granted. Right? But that God could explain to us everything that is needful for us in this life to know about Him, to know about salvation, know about the plan of redemption, and know how to walk in a manner that pleases Him. That is no small feat of grace at all. That's remarkable, right? He speaks through His creation. He speaks through His divine revelation. He condescends to speak to us. And He doesn't do it in secret. He speaks plainly and openly through His prophets, right? Through His apostles, through His written and preserved word. What God has to say is plainly available to all who have ears to hear. God doesn't speak in secret, in secret ways that are only open to the initiated, you know. He doesn't speak through diviners and soothsayers and that kind of garbage. God has spoken to his people and through them to the world. And he's done it truthfully and he's done it clearly, right? Everything that we need to know, everything that we need to understand in order to be saved, we can understand from the reading of the Word of God. It's not that lost people don't understand when you explain to them the mechanics of the gospel. It's not like they're, 
they, they can't possibly understand someone standing in their place and taking on, them, on themselves their guilt of their sin and dying in their place and paying the debt of their sin and then rising again from the dead. They know the facts of the gospel. The problem is they don't believe it. They don't believe it. But God has to say is plainly open to our understanding, right? He's spoken to us. He wasn't spoken to His people in vain. That's the whole point here. Like, God doesn't make empty promises. He speaks the truth. Everything He says is right. What He says, what He speaks is solid ground and it's not shifting sand. And that's the point. That's the point. That's what He's driving home here, right? Think about what the Lord Jesus Christ said of His own preaching. Right? Think about what He said of His own preaching. He's either God in flesh or He's unhinged. He said... Listen to these words. Matthew 7, starting verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Why? Because Christ is God and His words are the Word of God. And you either build your life on the Word of God or your life will be wrecked. It's that simple, right? Again, think about the Pharisees. It's not that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Look, they understood that Christ was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the Son of God, God Himself. They understood that. That's why they killed Him, at least in part. God speaks the truth. It's open to everybody. He's plain, plainly spoken the only way of redemption and that by exclusive faith and trust in Him alone, in the word of His promise, in the gospel of His Son, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, one to pay the wrath you know, of our sins, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins, the sins of the Old Testament saints, and it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be, the, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That word is plainly available to everyone. If they, think about it in our nation. If you really want to know the gospel, you can find it. You can find it. Listen to John MacArthur. Listen to Steve Lawson. Listen to R.C. Sproul. Get yourself a few Charles Spurgeon sermons and sit down and read them. Open the Word of God. Right? If you want to know the Gospel, you can. His Word's plainly available to everybody. And we're commanded to believe His Word. Why? Statement number four, because God has authenticated His truth. That to me is remarkable. You know, as a dad, when my kids were little, I would sometimes give them commands or give them instruction, and they would, you know, want to know why, and I would say, because I said so. And you know what? That's a legitimate answer. People sometimes go, oh, you shouldn't do that to your kids. Want to bet? That's a legitimate answer. Because I said so. I'm your authority. That's why. I'm not, I don't have to explain it to you. Now, as they get older, you know, you do them the grace of explaining it. But you don't do it when they're little. Otherwise, you have inmates running the asylum, man. 
<laughs> right? But here's the thing, right? God could just say, this is what it is. Right? The Bible could be a lot shorter. It could just be the gospel. And you believe this or else. Right? But God authenticates His truth. He's given us every reason to believe what He says is true over and against idolatry and false religions. Look at verses 20 and 21 again. He says, assemble yourselves and come. He's speaking to like, you know, the nations. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together, right? Let the gods, let the idols, you know, present their case is the idea here. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Now notice what he's doing here. God calls the survivors of the nations to gather before him, right? In the near term, it's everybody who survived first the militaristic conquest of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, right? But then, the, then Cyrus's, you know, militaristic conquests as he, as he delivers the, 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 the Jews that are in exile. And he calls the nations to consider the fact that God himself had already said that all these things would happen, right? And then they did. Like God predicted all of this. Long before it ever took place. Naming Cyrus by name 150 plus years before he existed. Right? He's made prediction after prediction through the prophets that have all come true. He authenticates his word. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's a trust in the word of Almighty God who cannot lie. And it always accomplishes His promises. Likewise, think about it today. Consider everything that God has predicted in Scripture that we see fulfilled now after the coming of Christ and in the events of our own day. Right? I mean, when you read the Word of God, especially when you read in the Gospels about the end times, right? When Jesus is talking about the signs of the ends of the age, it's not like you're reading that and going, hmm, I've never heard of any of this. No, you're reading and you're going, that sounds like today. Right? When you read in, you know, 2 Timothy about the corruption of the church, it's not like you're reading that and going, well, one day church is going to really be corrupt. No, you're reading that and going, and that day is here. And it has been for a while, right? The Lord is making the point here that, that He can be trusted because everything that He has ordained before the foundation of the world, everything that He has predicted has come to pass, and it's coming to pass even right now. And his point is, an idol can't do that. None of the false gods you've been created can do that. All the false books of all the false gods, of all the false religions in the world, none of them do that. Do you understand? None of them do. None of them authenticate themselves. They can't. They can't do it. God's basic intention, the basic premise that he's had all along, what sets him apart from other gods and and all other religions is that he declares what is long ago and of old. And then, lo and behold, that's exactly what it is. Right? As we read earlier in Isaiah, right? Isaiah 42, verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. 
Why? So you'll know they came from me. Right? Or, you know, Isaiah 46. How can the Lord do this? Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. We haven't gotten there yet, but we will. Here's a little preview. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Look, man, God authenticates his word, and his word stands forever. And that's why he says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever, because it does, right? It's truth. He authenticates it. And so, therefore, we better take seriously this last statement. Salvation's found in the Lord alone. That's it. Look at verse 22. I mean, it just makes perfect sense, right? With everything we just read. He says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. No matter who you are. No matter what you have done. No matter how great you are in your own eyes. No, no matter, you know, no matter what, no matter what idol you've been clinging to, turn to the Lord and be saved because He's the only Savior and that because He is the only God. That's it. And there's salvation in nobody else. Every living soul, if it's to be saved, must turn to God while there's yet time. And that was true in Isaiah's, you know, day. It's true in our own and it will be true until Christ returns in glory, right? The Lord is saying, repent and turn from your idols to me. The issue is idolatry. You can couch it in any other terms you want, what other religions you want to call it, what other one of beliefs you want to call it. It doesn't matter. The issue is idolatry. In fact, look, we see that kind of language not only in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament, right? Most notably in Paul's rejoicing in the salvation of the Thessalonians. Remember what he said to them? I'll read it to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 8. He says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everyone. Everywhere, everybody knows you guys are saved. So that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how, here it is, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Turn from idolatry, turn to God, and to His Son Jesus, right? Who delivers us from the wrath to come. Right here, God puts everybody on notice. Salvation is to be found only in Him. And then He says this, look at it, verse 23. By Myself I have sworn. Man, we better take this serious. Seriously, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. That means that shall not return to me void. That shall not cease to be fulfilled. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now look, it doesn't get any more serious than that. Think about this. There's nobody higher for the Lord to swear by, right? I mean, he's the highest of the high. There's nobody higher for the Lord to swear by. And so, he swears by himself. And basically the idea is this. Is as I live, as he lives, he has made a proclamation, a word that has gone forth in righteousness. That is, in solemn and in certain truth. 
It's gone forth in solemn and in certain truth, a word that will not be recalled or fail to be accomplished. That every knee shall bow and every tongue will swear allegiance or confess that he is God. Now that takes us back to the very first statement, right? When I said, will that acknowledgement result in salvation or not, right? That there's going to come a day when, when nations will recognize Yahweh as the one true God. The question is, in what manner each person will bow and confess before God? Paul picks up this imagery. This imagery of confessing before the Lord regarding the final judgment in Romans chapter 14 and verses 10 through 11. When he writes, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. He uses these words. And looking to the end of the age, when he writes of the Philippians, right? Talking about the humble incarnation and then the exaltation of Christ for his work of salvation. When he says, Philippians 2, start in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name above every name. To the glory of God the Father. Everybody is going to bow. Everyone. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Again, the only question is how? Well, there's only two possibilities. Those who by His grace have heard His call and have turned from their sin and trusted in the one true God and in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, they will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God Almighty and they will do it in glad worship. They will do it in humble gratitude for salvation. They will do it as a pardoned sinner, a rebel made a worshiper. Not because of anything in them, but because of everything in Christ, right? And those who have persisted in their rejection of God, those who continue in their criminal rebellion, those who continue to live out the desires of their flesh, who hate and still who have hated and still hate God, they will be compelled by the irresistible power of God to confess that He alone is God to their eternal shame, condemnation, and destruction. In fact, the last two verses capture this perfectly. Look at verses 24 and 25. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, this is God speaking, are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The redeemed will confess that in God alone is righteousness and strength. That's a way of, that's a that Hebraism describing salvation. And they'll be justified, right? Before the Lord, they'll be declared righteous and they will glory in the Lord forever. On the flip side, those who are incensed against him. And, and I want to say this really quickly. There's no neutrality when it comes to God. To seek to honor and worship Almighty God and to love him in, in truth, to refuse to do that is to hate him. It's, there's not a neutral position. God-haters, God-lovers, and somebody that's kind of in the middle. 
The scripture doesn't know anything of those people. The scripture doesn't describe those people. We're enemies of God, Paul says, before we're saved. Those who hate the God of the church, and the God who reveals himself in the Bible, they will come before him and be eternally ashamed because there's only one Savior and there's only one judge because there's only one God. There is no other. So when you see Isaiah 45, verses 14 through 25 in that light, right? You could almost take this text and preach the gospel to somebody, couldn't you? Yeah. Couldn't you? Yeah. I mean, it makes complete sense. Here are five plain, irrefutable statements, all grounded in the truth of the living God. All grounded in the only authoritative truth in the world. All nations will recognize Yahweh as the one true God. The true God is not to be found in any other religions. God alone has spoken the truth. God has authenticated His truth, and salvation is found in the Lord alone, in the Christ whom He's put forward as the propitiation for our sins. That's the theme of verses 14 through 25. No other God. Right? Thoughts, comments, quickly. We've got like five minutes, and then we need to pray. Anybody? Anything? Yeah, they want to be... Look, man, no, nobody wants to be lost. I mean, if, if they believe in hell, nobody wants to be lost. They'd like to be saved, but they'd like to be saved in a way that brings them glory. You know, I mean, that's just the truth. And you look at, look at the Pharisees. Again, there's an, I know we, you know we go back to those guys, but they were you know, Jesus' chief enemies, right? They're very much the evidence of that. Oh, look at all the things that we've done and all the merit we've earned with God. And now we, you know, I tithe of our mint and dill and cumin and all of my stuff. You know, I, I tithe of the lint out of my belly button. I, you know, it's like, it's almost ridiculous, isn't it? God alone sets the way of salvation. Yeah, bro. Oh, the first thing I show them is, is that there's nothing in them in which to glory. <laughs> really, that's where I would start. I would be like, what is there to glory in in you? What is, what's the word that you use with that guy when you're talking to him? What is, what is it noble in you? What, is, nah, what was the phrase you said to him? Uh, commendable. Yeah, that was it. John was talking to somebody who was kind of in that, you know, not exactly that mindset, but he thought himself to be a pretty good guy and, you know, was trying to blow smoke. And John just said to him, like, you know, what's commendable in you? Oh, you said, what is one thing yeah, what's, what's one, one thing that's commendable in you? quality you have that you would want your child to possess. Yeah. What is one admirable thing you say? Yeah. yeah, and he was like, well, when you put it that way, well, yeah. So that's where I would go. Like, if I was dealing with somebody, you know, the first thing I would deal with is, look, man, you need to understand your true state before God. It's not what the world tells you, and it's not what Christianity light tells you, that, you know, Jesus died to show you how much you're worth. Uh-uh. The cross doesn't prove how much you're worth. The cross proves how wretched sin is. Right? That's not... That's not the idea. Like, you know, it's, 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 there needs to be a proper understanding of the root of the gospel. The gospel, the reason Jesus saves is not because of any good that's in us, not even any foreseen good. Like, God looked down the corridors of time and saw that I would do this and that. If God looked down the corridors of time and saw that you, what you would do apart from his grace, all he would see is one unbroken line of sin. That's all he'd see, right? 
Because it's the grace of God that transforms a man's soul. It's a grace, the grace of God that makes one to be born again. It's the grace of God that makes one to actually have the faith to lay hold of Christ, have their sins forgiven, and follow Christ as Savior and Lord, meaning Master, right? It's the grace of God that actually makes you able to live in a manner that pleases God. Apart from that, no human being on earth can live in a manner that pleases God. You can't do it except the Spirit of God dwell in you. You can't do it. And, and even so, with the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we're not immune from sin, are we? So, that's where I would go. I mean, I'd be, I wouldn't be like, you are a rotten, filthy... Well, I wouldn't do that. I mean, that's not how I did But I would take them to Romans 3. Like, Romans 3, starting in verse 10, is one of the most explicitly clear descriptions of the, of the state of humanity. It's so clear. And... There's really no refuting it. And if you start from any other position wanting salvation except abject humility and a realization of your true wretchedness and sin, you're starting from a position from which you can't be saved. Because as long as you think there's any merit in you, you don't need the Savior. You don't need the Lord. So, that's how I'd handle it. As much as you can, go to Scripture with people. You know what I mean? Like, here, I, I want to say that. I mean, I know there are a lot of people that like apologetics and stuff. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with apologetics. I think apologetics can be a very good servant in some ways, in the sense that um, this way, it gives you an idea of the greatest arguments of people that you can then refute from Scripture, not from your own philosophical arguments. The problem with apologetics is when it moves from having its grounding in Scripture, right? You need to give a defense for the hope that's within you, right? Apologia. But when you move from Scripture to my own philosophy of things, you have just emptied all of your arguments of any power whatsoever. People don't really think about that often. They'll be like, wait, wait, are you sure? Yeah, I'm absolutely sure. I'm absolutely sure. Because I can argue people's philosophy with them all day long. You can poke holes in philosophy anywhere. But when you go to Scripture, you try to poke a hole in that, but you're not disagreeing with me, pal. You're disagreeing with the Almighty God who wrote this. Right? So. Exactly. Right. Yeah. He's going to honor his word. That's what he does. He always honors his word. And it's the word of God that brings about, you know, the regeneration by the work of the Holy Spirit. Like, Scripture's explicit in that. Yeah, brother. Yep. That's the question, right? Right. Yeah. Are you united to Christ by faith? Are you in Him? Yeah, that's the question, right? That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. When you get that, then you need to explain. Well, here's what the gospel means, right? Yeah, Mark. Oh, oh Trav. Good, Trav. I was just thinking about the Roman three too, just because of my story itself. You know, I thought I was going to be 
you know, I was a good person and whatnot, but it's, it's, we have a problem with authority, if the authority's bigger, so it's not until like we're broken that we can truly see. Yeah. Yeah, the problem with man, fallen man, I mean, there's a lot of them, but one of the chief problems is that you're on your, your own, you are your own authority. Boy, is that dangerous. We're so blind, but we yeah. see. We, yeah. We have to have somebody from the outside tell us yeah. the really bad news. Yeah. You're not a good person. <laughs> right. Well, it goes back to what, you know, Tim, I think you said this a while ago, but you got to get somebody saved, lost before you can get them saved. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it, it's not like Jesus adds to your already pretty good life and he gets you over the hump at the end. <laughs> Like, no. No, that's not the gospel. It's got to. The law comes before the gospel. Right? Yeah. Because that's kind of the modern gospel. It is. You're so valuable that you did this for you. And no, that's not the case. No. You are made valuable by his death and resurrection, his salvation of you. You are precious in the eyes of the Father. But before that, you're child of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what you are. It does. Well, because we live in a world that is semi-Pelagian, where everybody's kind of okay, kind of good, you know. And we don't, we don't even think about what Jesus said. You know, remember when, the, when they came up and said, oh, good teacher, and why do you call me good? Why do you call me? There's only one that's good. So here's the deal. Either you're acknowledging that I am God, which if that's the case, that's great. But if not, which is really going on, is you have a false idea of goodness. Right? Mark, what were you going to say? Oh, yeah. But he says, he's very gentle. You know, like he says, was it not I that created? Did I not speak? Did I not say? You know, and who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I? And he's being very down on our level to do everything he can to get us to understand these things. Yeah. We didn't have to do that. And how much more on the level could he get than the incarnation? Right? He's spoken to us by the prophets, you know. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Like, there you go. So, all right, we need to pray because we need to pray. So, uh, let's pray. Lord in heaven, we are amazed. I'm amazed at um, the wonder and the glory of your person and your grace and your kindness to sinners. Father, the way that you redeem people who had made themselves worthless and you make them your own precious possession. And you do it through the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm amazed when I consider the way that you speak to us in a way that not only we can understand, but Father, that we can, we can 
behold the greatness and the glory of your person. As Christians in this room, those of us who are in Christ, Lord, what do we have to boast in except you? You. And you're enough. I pray, Lord, that the words that we've looked at tonight, that we'll meditate on them and think seriously about them and that they will... There'll be more than just truth that we know, but it will be truth that affects really how we live and how we walk and what we say and what we believe and all of that. Thank you that your word is timeless. It's remarkable, Father, that we can be, you know, in this ancient book. And yet every single word rings true. Because it's timeless and it's always relevant. Thank you for your grace and to your mercy. Thank you for all of the good gifts that we have from the hand of our Lord. We love you and we give you all glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.